For this episode, I'm joined by Tarek Hussain, who's an author, travel writer and journalist specialising in Muslim heritage and culture. His new best-selling book, Minarets in the Mountains, A Journey into Muslim Europe, is the first by a travel writer to explore indigenous Muslim Europe and the first to do so through the eyes of a Muslim writer. I'm thrilled to say that the book has been nominated for the UK's most prestigious non-fiction award, the Bailey Gifford Prize. I learned so much from Tarek on this hugely important topic. I really hope you enjoy the listen. On one level, your book can be enjoyed as a vivid travelogue to the Western Balkans, a lesser known part of Europe. Reading invokes fabulous images, but the overwhelming impression is that you found people who are completely at ease with their identities and who have been living as Muslims in Europe for six centuries. In one of your radio interviews, you claim that Islam has been in Europe since the 7th century, when it was first revealed as a faith. Is that true? Yes. So this is based on the the historical sources, primarily from uh, Muslim sources that say that the first generation of Muslims arrived on the island of Cyprus, which of course is part of Europe proper today. There's also kind of a connection to this particular narrative through a mosque down there and a teki, which of course is a kind of shrine stroke Sufi lodge. And this teki and this mosque is dedicated to a woman who reportedly died on the island. And um, she may or may not have been one of the prophet's aunts. And, and the may or may not is to do with um, whether or not she was actually related. But as a, as a person and, and, and as a group of people, they were sent over by the then, I think, Muawiyah, who later became one of the caliphs of, of the Muslim um, community. But at the time, he was one of the governors. And I think he was maybe a military governor. And, and he had sent over a, a contingent of people to, to go over to Cyprus. And so this is the first time in which we see Muslims arrive in Europe. And it's I think it's within two decades of the Prophet's death. So that first generation arrived. Uh, and so we are saying that, you know, Islam has been in Europe for 14 centuries, just as long as Islam has been anywhere. And could you map out your journey throughout the Western Balkans? How long were you traveling and who made the trip with you? Yes, so um, we did it over what would have been the school summer holidays, and that's why the whole family was able to go. And this particular trip, of course, was off the back of the realisation in Bulgaria that the, the indigenous Muslim communities of the Balkans were actually much more alive and flourishing than I might have first assumed. So we mapped this journey by starting and ending in Sarajevo, primarily because, one, it was a great entry point, it had this wonderful, alluring uh, air about it. You know, the Jerusalem of Europe, the place where in one square there's a synagogue, there's a mosque, there's a church. All of this sounded exciting before Evlia Chelebi kind of shattered it all and told me that actually this was quite normal back in the day. But anyway, we start to map it. We started in Sarajevo and then the aim was to go through the three countries that I would call quote unquote Muslim European countries. And my justification for that is primarily to do with population um, and, and, and the demographics and the statistics tell us that in Bosnia, Albania and Kosovo, the vast majority of people there, over 50%, are Muslim or identify as Muslim. And then we went to Serbia, Montenegro and North Macedonia, which conveniently border all of these countries 
but I also knew that there were pockets in all of these where there was a richness of Muslim heritage and large populations of, again, indigenous people to the region who happened to be Muslim. And I went with my wife and also my two daughters. And the reason I wanted to take them is that I felt like this was our Muslim heritage as European. We have a multiplicity of identities as a family. I am of South Asian origin, but I was brought up in the UK and therefore I'm very European. And our children, Mm. obviously, going forward, we're going to be very much European, you know, if we don't talk about Brexit for a minute. (laughs) But um, they, they were obviously of the European identity and of British identity. And for me, this was a part of Europe's narrative that was significant to us as Muslims and had thus far been invisible in the popular discourse. And do you think that the trip has changed the way that your daughters have perceived their own identities as British Muslims? I think it's certainly having that effect, you know, um, during the trip and afterwards. I've never really sat down and tried to have that kind of academic discussion with them. And I've never tried, I haven't tried to pick out what it means to them because one, that's quite a boring chat to have with young teenagers. And two, it was never going to endear them to a holiday if I said, we're going to go and work <laughs> out what your identity is. And, you know, we're going to go and find all these historic stuff. You know, it, I, I, being a teacher by profession, I know it's more about show rather than yeah. tell. And so, the fact that you're going to be in a car doing a road trip through exciting new places was what they were really interested in. Um, Obviously, as part of that, they know their dad well enough because um, wherever I went, whether it was in the Far East, Bangladesh, um, America or here, they know I'm going to go looking for Muslim heritage because that's what fascinates me. Um, And in the process, they, they ended up learning. But I know that when we were there, for example, the look on their face when they saw someone with blonde hair, blue eyed, Um, turn around and nonchalantly say, oh, you know, as a Muslim, blah, blah, blah. And and to see them sort of drop their jaw and look at each other like this person is a Muslim and not a convert like their mother or whatever, right? Um, Or when they're walking through the streets and they see children that look like them playing um, in in the kind of, you know, shadow of a minaret where the adhan is going off and, and, and maybe a couple of hours later, the bells of the local church and then to walk past the synagogue and know that none of this is strange. None of this is foreign and none of this feels bizarre to the people who live there, regardless of their faith. I know that had a normalizing effect on them. And they, I know that they now know nobody can say to them that Islam is foreign, alien or new to this part of the world. You know, and that, and that I think was what's really important. Wow, so interesting. And I'm sure it will have a massive impact on them in the future and the years to come. Um, but you follow in the footsteps of a seventh, 17th century Ottoman traveller. Can you tell me a little bit about the significance of following in his specific footsteps? Yes. So as a Muslim travel writer, one of the things that began to dawn on me after the initial excitement of writing travel is that I was a lone voice in the English language. I'm talking about people who do deep dives, people who write books where they offer all the context. And you've read the book and you know how much research went into every chapter. I'm talking about that kind of writer in the main. When it comes to the English language, we don't have any Muslim voices. And so often those people who wrote about this part of Europe, 
this Muslim Europe, we're often looking at it through lens that were predominantly, whether it's historically or even most recently, predominantly it, it tended to be white, middle class, and from a, a class of people that were either historically or have emerged from what you might have called the colonial classes. In other words, they were part of the ruling class. And so often those parts of Europe, that Eastern Europe, often it was being viewed through those lens as the place of Islam, therefore the other Europe, that Europe over there, and then there's Christian Europe over here. And I think because some amazing people have done some wonderful work and translated Evliya Chelebi's words into English, I found in Evliya Chelebi's works one of the only Muslim um, narrators and travellers who has been to many of these countries and looked at it as his culture, something he embraces. This is somebody who's looking at these people as his people, as in Muslim people. So that was the main reason. And I wanted to offer those lens also to compare just how Muslim Europe once was to how it is today. Because of mm -hmm. course, since the 17th century, when this part of Muslim Europe was as Muslim as it's ever been, because the Ottoman Empire was at the height of its powers, a lot has gone on. And we have seen, um, essentially, the decline of the Ottoman Empire led to some really, really horrific skirmishes and wars. And then even after the Ottomans, we see the ethno-religious wars, which really began to kind of push back against the Muslim identity in this region. And in some cases, there were efforts to completely eradicate the Muslim identity. And this is well documented for those who go looking for it. But those who don't will just assume that there was no Muslim identity in certain parts there. And I wanted to kind of remind people that it, it wasn't always the case and that there has been an effort to eradicate this and that actually once upon a time, you know, this region um, was as Muslim as it gets and, mm. and the idea of Islam and Muslims is a normative part of the European narrative. You mentioned the wars yourself and the Balkan War was only a generation ago where Muslim Bosniaks suffered systemic genocide in ethnic tensions which followed Yugoslavia's breakup. How do multi-faiths now coexist in the region in the aftermath of the war? Is there a sort of collective forgetting and a willful push towards religious toleration that you sense? Um, I think um, different countries, I sensed it in a different way. Obviously, I had quite a focus on Bosnia because that was the scene of the most obvious um, Muslim genocide in recent years um, in Europe, certainly. And what I noticed about the Bosnians is they are extremely um, positive in that they want to move forward, but they are not going to forget what happened. And so they have actually integrated into the Eid um, celebrations or what they call Bayram over there using the Turkish term. Um, within that, they have assigned one of the days of Eid as a day to commemorate the martyrs, as they refer mm -hmm. to them, who died for being Muslim yeah. during that awful ethno-religious conflict in the 90s. So everywhere you go in Bosnia, especially, there is no getting away from the mass graves that um, sadly um, have been discovered. And there are vast monuments and you will see these very um, slim line tombs scattered across the countryside. And of course, when you get to places like Srebrenica or around Sarajevo, where it took place in large concentrations, you will see them as a part, permanent part 
of the geographic landscape now. So there is a constant reminder. And yet the Bosnians are very, very much about we want to move forward. We are going to re-embrace our Muslim identity. Um, we have a history of being able to coexist with others. And regardless of whether the Ottomans were the rulers or not, on the ground as human beings, there is ample evidence that, you know, there was a normalizing of living together and, and sharing resources and, and largely getting on. There is no denying that the conflict led to some clear lines being drawn. This is in no small part down to the um, Daytona Agreement, which essentially created two countries in one. Um, and we have this clear line which creates um, Bosnia and the Republic of Saperska. And when you get to the Republic of Saperska, it's quite apparent you're no longer in a Muslim country. But occasionally you catch a glimpse of a mosque that has been renovated or you catch a glimpse of ruins or, or something like that, much less so than, than, than parts of Bosnia. And you know that this was formerly a place that was as rich. And regarding today, could you paint a picture of the vibrancy of day-to-day -day Muslim culture, which you report as thriving in the Balkans? In, in what kind of way is it thriving and what's the day-to-day -day life like when you're travelling through these areas? So again, we have um, differences in different countries and it wouldn't be fair to, to sort of assume that all the Balkans Muslims are embracing their Islamic identity or practicing their Islam in the same way. And clearly there are, there are, there are differences in how they do that. So, for example, in Bosnia, one of the things I really sensed is um, that they, they have gone about and reestablished many of their Islamic institutes, the places of learning. Um, so, for example, the University of Sarajevo has an Islamic sciences faculty where they train imams, where um, they train scholars of hadith. Um, that's the traditions of, of the Prophet, of course, um, scholars of Quran and so on. And, and, yeah. and they have a central muftiat from which anyone who is going to take charge of a mosque comes through. So it's centralized and it's very coordinated. And so you can see this is a country that is going to embrace its Muslim identity in its entirety, whether that makes its neighbors comfortable or not anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's a Muslim identity that they are harking back to the pre-communist period to look for. So because they have a strong heritage of scholars and, and imams of the past and muftis of the past, they, they, they are trying to reconnect with that. I mean by thriving is um, I don't necessarily mean oh everybody's going to the mosque and praying and suddenly there's this huge rousing of of um, it, Muslim practice. I'm talking about people are comfortable in their identity. You know, people are happy and and comfortable to say that they are Muslim. People are comfortable, um, be they Christian or, or or even the the handful of Jews that remain in the area. They don't have an issue if they hear the Quran being recited during Ramadan or if they hear the the call to prayer and so on. And that's what I mean by thriving. That that it's we we need to get out of our minds this idea that this is a war torn region that is a grey communist former Soviet bloc, which most people will, will concede still sits in their popular imagination. And that's what I'm trying to get across to people is that when you go there, not only is it not that, you're going to bump into Muslims on a daily basis just going about their lives. And and so in that respect, their culture and their community is, is thriving. And that culture and community is going to be very different to the Muslims of, say, the Middle East, the Muslims of South Asia, but they're very comfortable in re-embracing 
that identity, whether it is a very practicing um, version of it or whether it is a very liberal version, whatever you w- wish to call. And you've spoken of post 9-11 Islamophobia. It seems to me that if we understood our European history a little better, then such prejudice may not be allowed to take root. Would you agree with this? Yes. Um, I think, you know, post 9-11 sort of, um, was the straw that broke the camel's back because anybody who studied pre 9-11 will, will see that Islamophobia has been normalized um, in, in Western Europe and, and just in Western rhetoric for a long, long time. And my own um, research into the writings of, of people in the English language who have written about Islam, be they people who went to what we might call Muslim lands in the East or, or in this case in the Balkans and whatever, often did write about Islam as the other. Now, this is just a matter of how history panned out as well, because in in in, in, in any case, whenever, um, you know, there, there is a kind of grapple for territory or a war for dominance, obviously the winners write the history, okay? So we know that, for example, in the, in the Western Hemisphere, because you might say historically Christendom won out, I mean, you know, ran out winners, you will see that there is a an alienation of Jews and an alienation of, of Muslims. Now, if we flip that over and we go to the Middle East, where, quote unquote, Islam came out dominant, it's very, very difficult to try and find the Christian and Jewish heritage in the non-obvious places, mm-hmm. you know, aside from the Bethlehems of the world. You know, when I was working for Lonely Planet and, try, um, and, and exploring Saudi Arabia, I was trying to sometimes eke out Jewish history and heritage and Christian history and heritage, and it was difficult. People weren't very um, forthcoming or or it was impossible to find the information without doing some deep dive studies, which isn't always possible in a guidebook. So when you have consistently othered something, be it Christianity and Judaism in the Middle East or Islam in the West, then obviously a phobia develops against these these cultures these religions these these people and and we are seeing the kind of almost not the end point but certainly some kind of crescendo and climax in what has happened post 9-11 what has happened brexit um and i in the book try to point at some of the moments that have helped to create this writers refusing to accept that muslims could be civilized enough to build something beautiful um writers consistently referring to um you know so um like albanians or whatever as somehow being further down the line in in the evolutionary process and so on and and you hear all of these um sometimes subtle sometimes non not so subtle conscious unconscious othering um and and by othering of course we mean that we haven't normalized Islam and Muslims as a part of the popular European cultural narrative. Now, what one of the interesting things is in recent times, we have almost normalized the Judaic presence. And let's be frank, a lot of that comes from the guilt the West carries. Um, prior to this, and I, I can speak openly about this because I've spent time with friends who, who have Um, activists who have worked on Judaic heritage in the West for the last 30, 40 years. And some of them very interestingly say, you are where we were 30 years ago, Tariq. You are trying to normalize what 30 years ago was just a very macabre look 
at, you know, oh, this is where the Jews used to live and then they were killed. This is the synagogue that got demolished. And there was no recognition of how wonderful Jewish heritage was, how, how much it contributed to Western um, civilization and the Western narrative. And, and so essentially, this is where we are with Muslim culture in the West as well. And so, yes, if Europe was to become more comfortable with its own Muslim identity, because it does have one. This is the problem. It's in denial about it, firstly. And secondly, it doesn't want to embrace it at the moment. Mm -hmm. If it becomes more comfortable with it and accepts it as its own, then I do think we are going to see a, redu a reduction of Islamophobia. I don't think Islamophobia is going to go away because prejudice never goes away. Prejudice has never, you know, we, we have known prejudice from the minute human beings walk the earth. What do you see as the potential threats to the future of Muslim Europe and what positive steps could be taken to protect the culture and faith for future generations? I think the threats are, are part of, you know, the right wing narrative that we consistently hear. And some of that um, has been so normalised that even if you point out hard facts to people, they are refusing to accept it, which I find really, really interesting. It's almost like not beyond denial it's just a case of you know even empirical evidence means nothing mm. to them because they're just they just think it's made up so for example i was talking to a friend who used to be um the commissioning editor for the balkans for lonely planet um and she herself is is of um serbian identity and she said you know she finds it tragic that there are certain people across her culture and community who simply refused to accept there was a genocide. But then you and I both know, Anya, in, initially there was refusal to accept there was a Holocaust. Yeah. And there are still what we call Holocaust deniers. So yeah. this will never really go away. But the people who are responsible for these narratives are the biggest threat to, to yeah. kind of any normalizing of coexistence and, and pluralism and tolerance. And, you know, tolerance isn't the best word because we want more than tolerance. We want acceptance of each other. And you mentioned Gulf tourism in Bosnia and the potential of maybe stricter interpretations of Islam influencing the region. What did you see there? Um, what I was alluding to through that particular discussion is that there was clearly a, a huge influx of, of Gulf tourists who were attracted to the region um, primarily because of what I've been speaking about, in that they recognise that this has deep Islamic heritage. And in, in, in places like Bosnia in particular, um, because of the revival of Islamic studies, we, we also have a large number of young people now able to fluently speak Arabic, um, able to engage in um, discourse in, in the Arabic language, which makes it easier, the food is halal, etc., etc. Um, and this is why um, a lot of people from the Middle East in places like Dubai and that are coming there for holidays and finding that they are very, very comfortable. And one of the reasons they are comfortable is because is because they know nobody is freaked out by the idea of, of, of them wearing, walking around in a niqab or wearing a hijab or, or, or having a beard longer than, than the Bosnians or, or wearing something that looks Middle Eastern. Because the Bosnian Muslim, like me, is very comfortable with, with all Muslim identities and, and knows exactly why these people do what they do. And it's nothing to do with the um, awful... Um, crazy narratives we hear some of our sadly even some of our leaders go on about um and so because bosnians are so comfortable with it it is something where um gulf tourists are clearly feeling comfortable going there and and in going there obviously they are bringing a slightly more conservative version of islam you could argue because they're the labels we use a slightly more orthodox whatever you wish to call it 
it's very different to the Bosnian interpretation of, of or, or traditional Islamic practices. And I guess some people I sensed in, in Bosnia in particular and, and other parts of the Balkans were a bit concerned if the, their, their young people might start to adopt a more conservative approach. Um, and in a, adopting a more conservative approach, did that make them more susceptible to maybe extremist um, narratives? That was definitely something that came across in some of the media that I read. Um, one or two um, people that I spoke to did express a concern. Now, they weren't saying that suddenly they felt like, you know, their young people were necessarily going to go off and become terrorists or whatever else. They they wanted them to remember what their historic, traditional Bosnian Muslim identity was about or, or you know, the Serbian Muslim identity or the Albanian Muslim identity or whatever. And, and they would rather they harked back to that and embrace that. Yeah. Um, because as you know as well, whether it's Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, whatever religion, when we move around the world, we see different variants. And, and clearly those variants have worked in those spaces. And, and clearly... Um, you know, the Balkans people feel like the historic Islam is what they want people to continue or re-embracing again. And what other Muslim heritage have you recently worked on that's been ignored? Gosh, where do we start? So <laughs> so the most recent one, um, just before the pandemic, I found myself in the south of Thailand. So this was, this was for a commission for Lonely Planet where... Um, I offered myself to update the the their best-selling Thailand guides. And um, I said to them again that, you know, I really wanted to come on board as one of the only um, Muslim cultural travel experts that they had to redress the way in which um, Muslim culture in Thailand had been historically presented. And don't get me wrong, I, I feel like my colleagues in Lonely Planet are very conscientious and always do mm -hmm. try their best. But the reality is, if, if you're not Muslim, you're not going to see it the way I see things, which is why we need to make sure we have a diverse range of voices. So anyway, um, Thai Muslim culture is something that people don't even believe exists. They don't even think it's a thing. Um, and I had known from my previous travels to Thailand and my explorations and working with um, some of my Thai Muslim friends now, there is this richness, there is this indigenous, wonderful um, Thai Muslim culture that goes back centuries and centuries. Um, but often all we ever hear about Thai Muslims is about the insurgency in the South and the fact that there are certain parts of Southern Thailand that we're not allowed to go to because, you know, there's, there's this conflict between the authorities and the Muslims. And I wanted to get away from that. Not to deny it, because I know there are troubles, but I wanted to also celebrate Thai Muslim culture. I wanted to talk about the, the historic sultanates that, that existed. I wanted to talk about the fact that there were there were these amazing female queens that ruled in um, Muslim parts of Thailand in the past. I wanted to show the beautiful mosque and how um, historically, you know, Thai Buddhist architecture had been integrated and merged with, with Muslim culture and so on. Nobody has decided to celebrate them or embrace them because obviously we get bogged down in a popular narrative. So that's one example. But as we're in the UK, I think one of the best examples we need to talk about as well is, is the work I did on what have now become the very first Muslim heritage trails in the country. And these are centered around this beautiful little mosque in Woking, which to this day, I am absolutely astonished when I tell people about it, that they don't know it exists, called the Shah Jahan, um, which of course is 
the country's first purpose-built mosque, and in fact, the only grade one listed mosque. It's like a miniature Taj Mahal, which is probably doing the Taj Mahal a disservice. You know, it's that kind of neo-mogul architecture. But this mosque sits very close to the country's very first Muslim cemetery um, and very close to the country's only Muslim military cemetery. So we have these three sites of huge significance to the to Britain's cultural narrative. And what's fascinating about the culture and the community that flourished there historically is it was led mainly by people who were converts to Islam. Mm. So we're talking about white British Muslims who didn't just leave a mark on, on Britain's Islam or Muslim cultural um, landscape, but they actually affected the world in some cases. So somebody like Marmaduke Pictou, to pick out the most famous probably, and Abdullah Kulliam, another person. But Pictou in particular, he became the first native English speaker to translate the Quran. And of course, as you know, when you are a native speaker of a language, you understand the nuances and the and the poetic way in which it works better than anybody else who, who, do, who's, who speaks it as a secondary language. His translation unsurprisingly becomes probably the most popular translation of the Quran into English in the early part of the 20th century. And right up until very recently, it w- it remained the most popular. I remember in my childhood, every mosque I went to in the UK had a translation of Pictou. Those people spouting the nonsense they did during things like the Brexit campaign have no idea that there were lords, ladies, relatives of the Queen who converted to Islam and were perfectly comfortable in their English-British identity doing this. And maybe if they knew these stories and these narratives, they wouldn't see Islam as such a threat. So we created these trails. I created them for an organization known as Everyday Muslim Heritage and Archive. It was another way in which to make something very significant accessible. Um, And we deliberately made it so that it was free. So anybody can go there right now, go to the mosque, go to the cemetery offices and pick up these maps um, in print form for free, uh, or they can go and download the PDFs for free. One is called the Woking Trail, which takes you to the mosque and and its library as well, which is another beautiful historic building, um, to the military cemetery, which is now the Peace Gardens, and then go to the cemetery, um, the, the actual civilian cemetery in Brookwood, and see that in 1884, there was a space bought and dedicated to Muslims in this country. You know, so even in this country, we have a history that goes back over a century at least. Absolutely fascinating. Gosh, you've been very busy, but I'd love to know finally what plans you have for future travel and writing projects. So this all depends really on the success of this book. Um, and so far, it seems to be going well. And if the, if other publishers recognize two things. One, there is a hunger for this heritage and people want to know about it regardless of whether they are Muslim or not. Um, And two, if publishers recognize that they need to continue supporting voices like ours, because this, of course, is a is a debate that goes beyond my work, and you see it on a, on a national level. And if that happens, then I do want to sort of revisit some more um, popular narratives, whether it's about Britain. I'd love to write a book about 
walking around Britain and traveling around Britain and exploring what what Muslim Britain might look like. There are two that are very, very close to my heart, which I'd really love to do, and for very different reasons. One, the Silk Road through the eyes of Muslim, mm. which of course is a very romantic journey. And up until now, and I've got books on my shelves written by many people who have done the Silk Road, but they've always been in the English language, they've not been Muslimized. And I want to really kind of put some Muslim lens on it. And the second one that is very dear to me is because obviously I was born in Bangladesh. There aren't any travel narrative books written on Bangladesh. And so I'd love to write that. And that, that would be obviously more about exploring my Bangladeshi identity. So, yeah, I've got loads of projects there, Anya. I just need a lot. <laughs> I, I kind of want to go back to Evia Chelebi's time almost and find yeah. a patron like his Melik Pasha, who just pays for everything. <laughs> and he doesn't have to worry. <laughs> he can do it all. He not worry about is turn up and write, you know. That, that'd be wonderful if I could. That's the dream. <laughs> patron who's like, yes, don't worry. You just you just do what you're gonna do. On me. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's such important work, and I've learned so much. I mean, so much more to discover, and hopefully, you'll be flying that flag of paving the way for us to keep learning. But yeah, amazing, so interesting, and I really appreciate your time. And thank you so much for chatting with me, Tarek. Been no, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure, and also, I just want to say, I really appreciate that you went out of your way to kind of try to connect and and show your appreciation for this because of course it shows that it's it's working it it's piqued your interest and and that's really why I'm doing the work I'm doing